And we're very pleased to have with us tonight uh, author and essayist David uh, Rakoff. David is writer-at-large at GQ Magazine. He is a regular contributor at the New York Times Magazine, and he's written for a variety of um, well-known and established publications like Outside, Vogue, The New York Observer, Salon, among others. He's also a regular contributor to Public Radio International's This American Life. And here's a fun fact. He's the only person to have filled in as guest host of the show. I think that's still true. Um, and if you've ever listened to Ira Glass's This American Life, it's an amazing lineup. So it's quite a feat to have been the only guest host. Um, perhaps lesser known, he's also an actor um, and has been involved in several major films, although he'll tell you that they tend, up, tend to end up on the cutting room floor, only show the back of his head, and so maybe that's why he's better known as a writer and not an actor. His first two collection of essays, Don't Get Too Comfortable and Fraud, enjoyed nearly universal acclaim, and tonight he'll be reading and talking about his latest collection, uh, Half Empty which you can also purchase outside from the Ivy Bookshop and have signed by him at the conclusion of this program. There are really, um, I think, endless things that one can say about David Rakoff, but here are just a few to get you warmed up for uh, the next hour or so. He once impersonated Sigmund Freud in the window of Barney's department store during Christmas week. He delivered what John Stewart called the best punchline ever, on The Daily Show. You can see that clip online. It's hysterical. I will not share it with you tonight because I will turn as red as um, my dress. Um, he identified with Stuart Little as a child, and he can tell you how to make a wedding toast or to give a wedding toast for people that you never really wanted to see married in the first place, and he can do that in rhyme. He's been called the most neurotic man on the planet. Please jo join me in welcoming David Rakoff. The most neurotic man, right? Is that what it was? Or most erotic man? I didn't... Um, okay, let me unpack. Uh, hi, thank you so much for coming out tonight. This is very nice of you. That John Stewart punchline, I might as well tell it. Um, let's begin with a bang, and let's work a little blue. Uh, so I was talking about um, the log cabin Republicans, who are the gay Republicans, uh, who are just the saddest group I could possibly ever imagine. I mean, it's truly, it's like um, beef steers in favor of butchers. I mean, it's just literally like the cow with the chalk outlining its own cuts on its body. You're desperate, desperate, desperate to be included in, in this party that wants nothing to do with them and has never even made the slightest gesture beyond something incredibly hostile towards including them, and, and still just like masochistic spaniels, they fall upon their swords over and over and over again. So I was writing a long piece about them uh, that turned out to be a chapter in my last book, and um, I wanted to find out what the rest of the Republican Party really thought about these people who wanted full-fledged they didn't even want full-fledged membership, wanted the, the merest cheese rind of, of membership, and it was being denied to them. So I called up this guy named Robert Knight, 
who was from one of those innocuous sounding institutes that's just basically a, a, a think tank of hatred. Um, it was called like some, the, the, the Culture and Family Institute, you know, something like that. And um, as happens when you speak to anybody who's on the far right, uh, who's virulently anti-gay, uh, what they turn out to be is, um, I'll just go and say it, a total closet case. They cannot stop talking about being gay. And when you, when I, what I mean by being gay is literally the pistoning mechanics of gay sex. <laughs> it's literally all they care about is anal sex, the act of anal sex, not the preamble, not the afterglow, literally the pistoning. It's just shocking. It's shocking to anyone. Who, I, I, I'm, I'm gay, you know, so it's just like, even I was just like, dude, you have got to calm down. So, uh, but everything I talked about to him, you know, he had some stupid answer. Um, but none of this editorializing on my part is actually in the piece. I, I, I literally, I was sort of journalistic about it, but this is years ago, and I, I have no problem calling him a uh, closet case and a homophobe and a, a hate monger and an idiot. But it was, um, everything I said about anything he, I said, you know, there's, a lot of science now that says that it might be actually chromosomal or have to do a hypothalamus and he said, junk science, you know, and uh, older gays have ruined their sphincters, which is like, well, I'm actually an older gay and it's, it's okay, you know. <laughs> um, and finally I said, well, you know, HIV is transmissible by uh, good old-fashioned heteronormative coitus, you know. HIV is hardly a, only a gay phenomenon. And he said, knowing that I was recording uh, the conversation in, into a tape recorder. He said, yeah, but not as much. I mean, the vagina can take a lot of punishment. <laughs> My regards to your lovely wife. You know, so <laughs> that's, that's what I said on Jon Stewart. So. <laughs> on that very savory note, shall we begin? Um, it's always good to work a little blue at the beginning. Uh, I'm going to read some stuff from the new book uh, in sort of shortened uh, public version. Uh, and then we'll have some Q&A and stuff. Nothing assails the writer's credibility more than a pleasant childhood. I freely admit to having had a lovely one, a happy fact reflected sadly in my book sales. And yet I would sooner do most anything short of putting needles in my eyes than willingly remember what it was like to have been a child. I was not beaten or abused, no dank cellars or chilly garrets. I was raised in great creature comfort, in a bustling and cultured metropolis, in a home decorated in typical mid to late 20th century secular humanist Jewish psychiatrist. African masks, paintings, both abstract and figurative, framed museum posters, marameco bedspreads. And listen, on the hi-fi, why, it's Pete Seeger and the Weavers live at Carnegie Hall. Or Jacques Brel is alive and well and living in Paris. Or is that Miriam Makiba clicking her way through a Koza lullaby? And on the bookshelf, among the art monographs, the Saul Bellow and Philip Roth novels, there, tucked in behind the Encyclopedia Judaica and the collected New Yorkers, 
You might just find that old copy of The Joy of Oral Sex, a gag gift never thrown out. As the indulged youngest of three, mine was a golden upbringing under the loving guidance and tutelage of two caring and and adoring parents whose own path was illuminated by the sunlight they were convinced shone straight out of my ass. And still, I loathed being a child. Plainly stated, being a child was not, as used to be said around the time that I was a child, my bag. Childhood was a foreign country to me. Everyone has an internal age, a time in life when one is not one's best, then at the very least one's most authentic self. When your outside and your inside are in sync, and soma and psyche mesh about as perfectly as they're ever going to. My internal clock is probably calibrated somewhere between 47 and 53 years old. I don't want to make it seem like I was so smart or mature or advanced. I was off the charts in only one respect, really, although remarkably so. I was tiny. I come from a short family, but I was worryingly diminutive, freakishly small. Others were below average in size, but they usually made up for it by being athletic or straight. I was not one of the shouting, jostling, hockey-loving boys, and I also wasn't a girl. In E.B. White's classic 1945 book, Stuart Little, the protagonist is the second son of Mrs. Frederick C. Little of New York City, a child who was, quote, not much bigger than a mouse and who also looked very much like a mouse in every way. Stuart Little was articulate beyond his years, Stuart Little had a flair for costume, dressing up in the full regalia of sailor whites just to visit the boat pond in Central Park. I remember thinking in second grade, yes, yes, this confluence of traits, this unquestioned membership in a family despite one glaring material difference from them all, the tininess seeming only to accentuate the courtly manners and the dandy tendencies, yes, this was me. I was Stuart Little, or so I fervently wished. I lacked Stuart Little's self-possession, his ease in the world. Stuart Little was only afraid of dogs, whereas I, skittish as a chihuahua, was polymorphously phobic, scared of everything. Dogs, heights, subways, crowds, snakes, the dark, elevators, tunnels, bridges, spiders, flying, loud noises, roller coasters, horror movies, fireworks, Rock music that seemed to glorify chemical abandon, balloons blown up too big, changing light bulbs, athletes, squirrels, going down into the basement. Everything was freighted with terror. I vibrated with anxiety. (laughs) I must have been very, very unpleasant to be around. It dawned on me only recently that even though in my adult life I had published two books and lived through a bout of cancer, Essentially, nobody from my childhood had ever attempted to contact me. That's actually a joke. That usually gets (laughs) something of a laugh. Stuart Little, having set out for the open road to seek his fortune, finds himself playing substitute teacher in a one-room schoolhouse, a position he manages to secure simply by donning the professorial drag of striped trousers, tweed jacket with waistcoat, and a pince-nez. The children are wrapped by his cunning size and his stern air of authority. In a lesson on ethics, he has one of the boys steal a small sachet from one of the girls. Stuart turns his attention to the purloined pillow. 
which attracts him. It might make a lovely, fragrant bed, he thinks. That's a very pretty thing, says Stuart, trying to hide his eagerness. You don't want to sell it, do you? Oh, no, replied Catherine. It was a present to me. Mm, I suppose it was given you by some boy you met at Lake Hopatkong last summer, and it reminds you of him, he says to her dreamily. Yes, it was, says Catherine, blushing. Ah, says Stuart, summers are wonderful, aren't they, Catherine? Stuart Little, at this point in the story, is seven years old, and yet... Here he is, transformed into Thomas Mann's Aschenbach, the aging roué, his summers of love and beauty all far behind him, now watching the erotic play of the youngsters on the Venice Lido as the plague creeps in. How I wished that I, too, might be able to skip directly to adulthood in just the same way. Not so much that I might be big, but so that I might be done with all of this and enjoy some peace. Grown-ups, it seemed to me, didn't have to play sports. Grown-ups, in general, seemed much more indulgent of each other's problems, each of them having so many of their own. If I could make it to adulthood, I would be able to join their tolerant ranks, and nobody would mind my size. Until such time, I could usually divert people's attention away from my physical lack by trotting out an advanced vocabulary, making a joke or a Yukio Mishima reference, and then, like the trout tickler who is cooled his hand in the stream long enough so that the fish doesn't even feel itself being picked up out of the water, there would come a moment where I knew that I had my listener. There would be a subtle change in their faces, an inclining forward, and their features would reassemble themselves, focused upon me in an attitude of almost perplexed amusement. There is a reason it is called charm. It is a trick, and like all false magic, it never lasts. Eventually, even the most gullible rube will begin to examine the rising table or ferret out the source of the one-for-yes, two-for-no knocking from the spirit world. And then he sees the sham. Just as quickly as people's faces went a little bit dreamy, I could see themselves blink themselves back to reality. I'm talking to a child, they would suddenly realize, like in a cartoon where the halo of revolving stars is dissipated by a vigorous shake of the head, they would look at me with a kind of what-was-I-thinking self-reproach. I had been caught out once again. At a family party at age 12, I was talking to a woman I did not know. She taught classics at a high school in Toronto, as I recall. And we were having a nice conversation until the moment when I mentioned something about seventh grade or as we called it in Canada, grade seven. And she made an exaggerated gulp and bugged her eyes out a little and crossing her surprised hands upon her collarbone said, I'm sorry, did you say grade seven? Yes, I replied, knowing exactly where this was leading. <laughs> oh my, she said, smiling. All this time I thought you were telling me you were seven. She playfully... <laughs> pushed me on the shoulder in an OU gesture like this was some stunt I had put over on her, which I suppose it was. She smiled companionably. My size was a joke we could share in equally. <laughs> I thought that was a hideous, horrible mask you were wearing, but it's actually your face. Aren't you clever and funny? <laughs> mm. 
I was four foot ten when I entered the 10th grade at the local public high school, an institution catering primarily to teen Jewish royalty, as my brother called them. I could not compete in the arms race of wardrobe or popularity, and I didn't try. Happily, my size also meant that I didn't even have to feign interest in the romantic games between the boys and the girls. One look at me was all you needed to know was that that would be writing checks my ass could not cover. <laughs> like generations of other misfits before me, be they morphological, sexual, or otherwise, I decided that I would make theater my refuge. The non-musical offering each year was directed by the drama teacher herself. She selected ambitious, issue-driven works like David and Lisa, which was about two adolescent mental patients. David was hyper-intellectual and didn't like to be touched, while Lisa was a bubbling free spirit given to rhyming echolalia. This was one of those plays from the 1960s that equated insanity with deep artistic sensitivity, asking that disingenuous question, who is to say who is crazy? You? I? Perhaps it is the mad who are truly sane. It was considered bad form at the time to posit that perhaps the muttering fellow in the corner rubbing feces into his clothing seemed a little bit, I don't know, off. <laughs> that year's offering was to be The Ecstasy of Rita Joe, a work that dealt with the social problems and injustices facing Canada's native population. It was the 1970s, so we were still calling them Indians. A gritty drama, Rita Joe was unrelieved by even the faintest glimmer of levity or hope, ending with a spectacularly brutal gang rape and murder of its woe-begotten heroine, precisely the kind of deeply earnest downer that only a bunch of teenagers would dare to put on. I could not wait. <laughs> the drama classroom was a shoes-off environment. No desks, just wall-to-wall -wall nylon broadloom in a mottled goldenrod. Fifteen hopefuls were on the floor in a circle around the drama teacher who sat with her legs folded under herself, zen tea master-like. She surveyed us and then her eyes lit upon me. She gave me a small smile, the corners of her mouth turning up slightly while at the same time from her nose I could hear a small puff, the softest whisper of breath, the sound a pillow makes when you sink your head into it. The exhalation pushed her head back and up in the opposite direction ever so slightly. <laughs> I'm sorry, she said to me before she even handed out the saffron yellow script books. I'm afraid I can't even let you audition. I'm going to need actors who are more physically substantial. There are some moments in life that are perfect, not necessarily wonderful, but that hew so closely to some platonic or ruminated upon version of themselves that one almost can't believe they're happening. In fact, one doesn't believe that they're happening. As a freshman in college, for example, walking along 112th Street of a winter's evening, the Cathedral of St. John the Divine just up ahead, I looked over to my left at the garbage bags in the empty lot at the corner. In the faded purple gloaming, their surfaces swirled. They seemed to be undulating. And I remember thinking to myself, what an amazing trick of the light, because 
it's almost as if those garbage bags were simply covered with live rats. But, <laughs> of course, they're not, because to see that with my own eyes would be too horrible, too scarring, too much exactly what I fear at this moment on this dark New York side street. Ergo, here be no rats. <laughs> so on I marched right up to those self-same hefty bags, which, of course, were covered teeming with starving rats, which squeaked en masse, a horrible squealing rodent choir that scattered upon my approach, some of them almost running over my boots. So when the drama teacher said, I'm going to need actors who are more physically substantial, essentially announcing to the room, this production is open only to people with pubic hair, which you emphatically do not yet seem to have, they were... So exactly the words of which I lived in fear, the words I anticipated coming out of everybody's mouth, I didn't get it at first. I thought I was still making it up in my head. She was smiling at me after all, and I smiled back the entire time. Still grinning and hot-faced, I got to my feet and I left the circle. I walked to the door and found my shoes among the piles of sneakers. I laced them up. I found my jacket and my knapsack. The drama teacher had at this point moved on and was already asking other students to read from the play as I stepped outside and closed the door behind me. Years later, I had a summer job in college as a researcher in a psychiatric hospital. One day, a boy exactly my age who had been sent home from school after a schizophrenic episode showed up at my office door. Formal patient contact wasn't part of my job, but I wasn't forbidden from talking to him either. I had been instructed to treat them all with respect and kindness, but this boy freaked me out. The differences between us seemed insufficiently pronounced without a discernible before and after split screen separating us. I felt like I too might go crazy at any moment just from being in close enough contact with him. Secondhand psychosis. He was agitated and holding his notebook in one hand, which he held out to me, open to a page. Look at this. Exhaustive tables of German verb conjugations covered the paper, written in the tiny, meticulous hand that seems to be the sole province of the mentally troubled. Those look like German verbs, I said. Yeah. Yeah, I know what they are, he said, nodding his head impatiently. What I want to know is who wrote them. Without even thinking about it, I gave him a smile, accompanied by a small nasal puff of air whose gentle shotgun report pushed my head back and upward, nod. <laughs> here's, where things get, here's where things get weird in an almost bleak house coincidence. I saw my high school drama teacher that very same summer, very close to that same psychiatric hospital. She might have been getting Chinese food, but come on. <laughs> I knew enough to respect her privacy. I would let her initiate the contact if she wanted it. But I wanted to convey to her that I finally understood her smile that day in the classroom was meant to sweeten a gentle admonition, a friendly entreaty, as if to plead, please don't make me complicit in your delusion. A smile that says, can't you see it? I mean, you have eyes. Look at yourself. 
I watched her as she furtively shifted her eyes away from mine quickly, so as to pretend she hadn't seen me at all. I didn't blame her for not wanting to stop and talk, and I didn't really mind. She was probably having a hard day, and anyway, by that time, I had grown. Um, I am going to, let's see, I'm going to sit down and read to you from now on, if that's okay, because I, my cardiovascular system is shot lately. It's all those drugs. Do you guys know that story about, uh, Jerome Robbins, you know, the choreographer of West Side Story? So Jerome Robbins is, I guess next to George Balanchine, the true genius choreographer of the 20th century. He's the only one whose work doesn't get used up. I mean, you can see a Jerome Robbins piece, it feels completely modern. It's still contemporary, the way George Balanchine. But Jerome Robbins might have been one of the worst people who ever lived. <laughs> he named names for the House Un-American Activities Committee. He's a total, total fucking asshole. <laughs> so uh, Jerome Robbins was directing West Side Story on Broadway in the 50s, the, film, the, you know, the musical that really redefined the American musical. And he was addressing the cast um, being his usual asshole self, and the cast was here, and he was addressing them, orchestra bit. So now let's zoom in the kind of matrix way. You're the cast, I'm Jerome Robbins, that's the orchestra bit, and he's giving them notes, and he's walking back, and he's walking back, and the entire cast of West Side Story sat there like this. <laughs> Until he walked, and I think broke a leg. I just saw that when I did the chair. <laughs> there you go. Uh, let's see, what else shall I read? Um, I'm going to read a little brief thing from one of the chapters in the book, which was uh, originally appeared in a book called State by State, which was based on the old WPA guides. During the uh, Depression, the WPA sent all these uh, writers out to all the states and they produce these very beautiful, very exhaustive guides to each state. And so uh, Sean Wilsey and Matt Weiland are these two editors who did a book about um, football fandom or something. I, it's sports related, I, I don't know what it was about. Um, but they decided to get 50 writers to go cover 50 states. And I was uh, given Utah. I mean, you know, just I mean, look at me. Obviously. So, um, this is from the Utah chapter of State by State. Uh, what they were looking for was not something exhaustive, but a good deep slice of an experience of the state. So, this is, human history has always been subject to the random and anarchic interaction of rock and water. Settlement succeeds or fails according to an unwritten checklist. Is there a felicitous dearth of malaria-bearing insects and wild animals? A convenient absence of marauding locals? Does that vengeful and quick-to-hour volcano god routinely incinerate our children and bury our homes beneath an infernal slurry of lava? No? Let's stay a while. <laughs> what makes Utah unique is not just that those who settled it felt they could live there, but that they should live there. It was upon receiving reports from his advanced men 
of this paradoxical region of arable land hard by an inhospitable desert at a crop-killing inland sea that Brigham Young then received the divine revelation that this was the true land of the saints, topography as God-given destiny, and what topography it is. I am heading to Promontory Point, home of the Golden Spike Historical Site, about 100 miles northwest of the city. It was there on May 10, 1869, that the tracks of the Central Pacific met those of the Union Pacific, and they were joined to form the first transcontinental rail system. It can be hard to fathom that I am standing at one of the most important places in the United States, but it was there at the Golden Spike that the country turned into, well, a country. The effect was felt immediately. This is not metaphoric. The Pony Express ceased operation literally two days later. With the railroads, the trickle of settlers coming by wagon train was suddenly upgraded to a flood of terrifyingly efficient westward expansion. Manifest destiny transformed from the merely notional into reality at a speed never known theretofore. Just ask the Indians. Scrub plain stretches in all directions to the suede brown hills in the distance. Even seen from above, the satellite images on Google Earth reveal an expanse as beige and unvaried as a slice of bologna. <laughs> F. Scott Fitzgerald stopped too soon when he wrote about the fresh green breast of the New World, affectionately known as Long Island, that bloomed before Dutch sailors' eyes as being the last, man, last time mankind came face to face with something commensurate with his capacity for wonder. There was a whole continent beyond the eastern seaboard to slake the thirst of those seeking such adventure. Standing at the squat commemorative obelisk, I try to conjure the mindset that beheld this vast, sear plain of brown dirt with the bare foothills rising in the distance and the far more forbidding gray snow-capped mountains rising further beyond, all under a sky whose unbounded immensity proclaims my insignificance with an irrefutable and terrifying truth. But I cannot do it. How does one take all of this in and still think, yes, Yes, I will go ever gaily forward. I will endure a pre-industrialized trek over hundreds of miles on a rocking, hard-slatted wagon bench or in a saddle or on foot. I will leave my children behind or watch them succumb to scarlet fever, rickets, or infection. On those special occasions when I do wipe my ass, it will be with leaves. <laughs> I will have an abscessed molar extracted by some half-blind truck wagon drunkard, wielding a pair of rusty pliers, and then I will employ my own just-past Neolithic tools to make this railroad, this house, this town, and one fine day with my remaining teeth, I will bite down on a leather strap while they amputate my leg without the benefit of anesthetic, and then I will hobble 22 miles on foot, one foot, so that I may climb a rickety scaffold in order to carve a tribute to the glory of God into the unyielding granite escutcheon of a cathedral. How did they do it? The monks and abbots who hauled the rocks to build their monasteries on craggy Himalayan peaks and kept at it until the job was done? Ditto the conquistadors who even fueled with the promise of gold saw those jagged stratospheric peaks of the Andes and didn't just say, oh, fuck this, I'm going back to Spain. <laughs> it seems frankly remarkable that anybody anywhere ever attempted anything. 
And then I'll try and I'll read uh, I'll read something really short, and then we can have Q and A. So um, I, although I try and uh, uh, getting laughs is uh, a nice dividend, but it's never my sole purpose when I try and write a piece, because I'm like it or not, I'm more uh, essentially at heart a journalist. But occasionally the lure of mammon is so strong that I try to write a humor piece, and it's not my strong suit. Um, and also, there's very little real estate now for selling humor. There's, in fact, I think only one place, which is the Shouts and Murmurs column of the New Yorker magazine. And so, coupled with the fact also that I just really don't know what's going on in the popular culture at all, so, and they like things to be sort of timely, and I never really... I'm always, you know, it's like, hey, have you heard about these internet cafes where people, <laughs> you know, so, so it's just pathetic, you know, so, and so I try my best occasionally, so this was my vain attempt at trying to generate some revenue um, based on a phenomenon that sort of came across my desk um, probably three weeks too late. 25 random things about me. <laughs> Number one, without even one guitar lesson, I once taught myself how to play a song for a friend's birthday. Number two, the song was Suzanne, which also used to be my favorite name. Number three, I am an amateur locksmith. Number four, I own four pairs of binoculars. Number five, I have donated blood. $1,412 worth of blood, to be exact. <laughs> Number six, I spent last Valentine's Day at Balthazar Bistro on Spring Street, surrounded by happy couples slowly drinking my way through two bottles of Gewurztraminer and most of a three-tier tower of seafood. <laughs> Number seven, I once wrote a poem where I came up with 16 different ways of describing just one pair of blue eyes. Number eight. Oh wait, I just came up with a 17. <laughs> Dissembling whore. <laughs> Not really a description, it didn't really rhyme, I know, but it's super apt. <laughs> Number nine. What is it about guys named Paul who think they're the shit just because they're oncologists who like to cook? <laughs> Number 10. Don't ever hide a $1,412 star sapphire ring in a raw oyster as a surprise and then drink two bottles of Gewurztraminer on your own. <laughs> Number 11. I had a tattoo removed once, a painful and expensive process. I tried to negotiate saying that the two N's and the Z, which is really just an N on its side, should count as one letter. No dice. Out. <laughs> LOL. <laughs> Number 12, I do great accents. My VD clinic receptionist voice can fool even actual doctors who work their way through med school by being underwear models, which seems like an incredibly gay way to make money, I'm just saying. <laughs> Number 13, I love climbing trees. When I was a kid during summers on my grandparents' farm in Ohio, I still love it, in fact. One particular tree in New York is a favorite of mine. It's a blackberry tree, yum, on 17th Street near 3rd Avenue. And I used to be able to climb all the way up to the third floor apartment <coughs> height until the superintendent cut down the lowest branches. 
thanks for ratting me out, Jose. If I see you, I'm gonna come at you with a carpet knife. <laughs> Just kidding, LOL. <laughs> 14, I once ran with the bulls at Pamplona. 15, by ran with the bulls, I mean I was maced. <laughs> 16, and by Pamplona, I mean in New York on 17. <laughs> 17, I know who called in that bomb threat to the early American furniture department at Sotheby's. 18, there is just enough cleanser in the average can of Ajax to spell out the words, I don't know, Paul is gay, for example, and then if you then douse it in lighter fluid, you can burn it into a sidewalk almost permanently. 19, I can take telephoto pictures, print them out at Kinko's at 21st Street and Park Avenue South, rent a car and deliver the photographs to the doorstep of a house in Bala Kinwood, Pennsylvania, and be back in bed in New York City all in a matter of four hours. <laughs> Number 20. With just a few phone calls, you can cancel someone's medical insurance and they won't find out for months. <laughs> 21. Most dry cleaners will just give you anyone's clothes if you know their name and address and if you're willing to pay for it. 22. For my money, there is almost nothing cuter than watching a dog try to walk, let alone stand on its own legs after it's eaten a quarter of a Xanax crushed up into some hamburger. So cute. Number 23. I have x-ray vision, or I must have, right? Because otherwise, why would my merely standing on the northeast corner of 3rd Avenue and 17th Street, easily a legally sanctioned 340 feet away, and fully three stories down the street, that would be such a threat, such a terrible, terrible, awful thing, unless I could see through a fucking brick wall, am I right? <laughs> number 14, I'm allergic to, number 24, I'm allergic to Brazil nuts. Number 25, I believe in love. <laughs> Um, so we can have some Q&A now, if you felt like it. The first question's always the hardest, I know. But no one leaves until we have <laughs> Yes? What do you hope to take away from the experience of live reading? What do I hope to take away from the experience of live readings? Um, there's something incredibly lovely about the immediate response of an audience. Uh, which is wholly different from the act of writing, which is spent in solitude, complete solitude. And you never know what the response is going to be. So it's, um, yeah, it's like it's dessert. I mean, it's just the nicest payoff <laughs> in the world. Uh, also, not to be too earnest about it, because there's actually, there's this mania in New York City right now for storytelling series, which kind of, drive me a little bit crazy because they always come bundled up with this faux earnest and like deeply noble, you know, stories are how we tell it, how we describe ourselves to ourselves and it's the earliest form of theater and in caves we used to tell stories by torchlight. You know, and that always seems a little grandiose and it also, um, a lot of them sort of pretend that they don't take any rehearsal or any writing which uh, assails the sort of primacy of work. It's that whole myth of sort of that the first ejaculatory pressing that comes out of your mouth is what makes a writer, and I, I don't believe that. I think what makes a writer is sitting with yourself and tolerating yourself 
to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite in solitary. But there is something immediate, and there is something that goes back and forth between us, I think. Did you ever see that Lily Tomlin show, The Search for Signs of Incredible of Intelligent Life? It's an astonishing one-person show, and it really still holds up. And one of her characters is named Trudy, and Trudy is this crazy homeless woman. And the reason Trudy went crazy and became homeless was she used to work in advertising, and she had to sell snack food to sub-Saharan Africa and said in a meeting that they didn't have the concept of meals in sub-Saharan Africa because they had no food. So the thought of eating between meals <laughs> was totally new territory they could mine. And that, she said, when her mind went essentially sproying and she became a complete you know, <laughs> lunatic, wandering Times Square with a shopping cart and a tinfoil hat. But there's one point where she's talking to aliens, space aliens, who come to visit her, and she holds up a can of soup and an Andy Warhol print of a can of soup, and she says, soup, art, soup, art. And then the show goes on. It's very funny, but it's also incredibly profound to the point where the accretion of just time spent with brilliant Lily Tomlin, this incredible writing, these incredible characters, and you realize that she's actually been speaking to real aliens. And the aliens say to her, we understand it now. The performer is soup, but the audience is art. Which I think is so fucking great, right? No, I, I mean, it's Jane Wagner. It's just so amazing. So that's what I get out of uh, a reading. Yes? When you and I were first met, how did it go? He was really drunk. When Ira and I first met, uh, how'd it go? Well, I met Ira when he was a cub reporter for NPR, uh, long before he had started his show. I was uh, friends with David Sedaris, and we were already doing theater downtown in New York City. But uh, the Santaland Diaries had already been produced for Morning Edition. But Ira was just covering the education beat, and he came up once to see one of the plays that we were doing downtown. Um, so, I mean, the stakes were incredibly low. He was just a guy, you know. Um, he was a nice guy. He's a very nice guy. Um, he's not, he's not a, a mean drunk guy. That was, <laughs> that was oh, a joke. Is he a mean drunk? David is not a mean drunk. David is a lovely guy. And I kind of owe both of them my career. Um, Ira, because the show made it viable and marketable for a kind of first-person writing. And uh, let's be honest, not a terribly mainstream kind of voice. Um, and David, because through, it's through him that I met Ira. So, yes? Can you talk about film and theater? You've made references to both of them, but I'm not familiar with your work in There's a good reason for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, if I had to survive on my film and theater income, that would it would have been remarkable, because it would have been approximately $1,700 over the course of 23 years. <laughs> Which of you, I can't even do that kind of math. Um, I did a lot of downtown theater with the Sedaris, with Dave and Amy, uh, in really, really off, 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 off Broadway venues. Um, far smaller than this room. Uh, I got the part- stuff that you wrote, or? Stuff that Dave and Amy wrote. They wrote. Um, but a lot of it was sort of improvisationally based, uh, initially. Um, there's a chapter in this book about having been, having been seen in one of those 
plays and being cast in a major movie as a gay decorator of dubious national origin. You know, a big Hollywood movie with like Bette Midler and Goldie Hawn and uh, Diane Keaton. Um, and I was so uh, lousy that I got replaced after one day of shooting. I got replaced <laughs> with uh, Bronson Pinchot. But I was in the movie Strangers with Candy, although I don't say a word. So I'm essentially um, bits. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm uh, essentially a two-line part in the movie Capote, but it's from this angle. <laughs> but then recently, uh, with friends, I wrote the screenplay, the script adaptation for and acted in a short film called The New Tenants. And that actually won the best uh, short, uh, at the Oscar for best short. I can't find it anywhere, though. iTunes, apparently. Oh, okay. I've been looking for it. Yeah, yeah, it's just on iTunes. I, I don't know how to do that, but that's. <laughs> <laughs> yes, apparently so. Yes? What was it about being a child? What was it about being a child that didn't work for me? I didn't like not being listened to. I didn't like, I didn't like the lack of independence. Uh, I didn't like the physical lack of autonomy. I didn't like the fact that I couldn't navigate the physical world with my chubby little fists. You know, that, that if I wanted to use glitter, or if I wanted to eat my soup, or if I wanted to do anything, that the distance between the things I wanted to do and the actual realization of the things themselves. That bridge, that was, it was an almost unbridgeable chasm. And that was incredibly frustrating to me. I didn't like that. I didn't like the intellectual lack of autonomy, which I, I, it is as it should have been. I wasn't that, I was six years old. You don't listen to a six year old in everything they say. I mean, you know, there's a reason I wasn't given house keys and <laughs> matches and such, you know, I was, but I didn't like that, it wasn't my thing. Also, childhood, there's something sort of unalloyed about childhood, there's something all-embracingly fun about childhood, and I was a very anxious kid, I remained an anxious grown-up, so it really wasn't my thing, I was scared of everything, and I didn't like feeling so anxious all the time, uh, and I was tiny. Um, I, I, I really do prefer being a grown-up. And, you know, the things that can give one pleasure in childhood are things I still derive pleasure from. But only now, you know, I still do arts and crafts on a regular basis. I mean, literally, on a regular, regular, regular basis. <laughs> I, it's in my apartment. It's, it's how I procrastinate from work, uh, from writing. Um, but the joy that I get in being able to actually physically navigate and, and manipulate my materials is that's a, like a childhood thrill, childlike thrill. So it's not like I'm without a capacity for pleasure or joy. Um, it is, in fact, it, is, it turned out exactly as I had hoped and, and thought. I got older and it got better. Uh, you know, I feel very lucky to be able to say that. There was some, yes. My daughter and I became aware of people in this American life. And first I want to say, I'm not sure if you're aware of how that show is instrumental in terms of having some intimacy with your children, which are on a different plane than you are. Oh, right. How old is your daughter? My Can everybody hear? My daughter is 19 now, but we've been listening to it for years and years. And it's, put, it's brought you together. I mean, completely, because it's, 
That's interesting. You know, it, it, it's that show that completely, I mean, she listens to anything on the chance or who listens, but that's the show that she religiously listens to the two of us will together and it spawns all kinds of conversation. So that I just wanted to oh, like to know that in terms of the collaboration with the participants on the show when a theme is picked and you're participating in it, do, are you all just blindly doing your own thing? Do you talk about it together? I'm just curious. Oh, no, no, no. That's, that, that's entirely up to the producers to do the, um, the producers come up with the theme and so they, they just say, this is what we're doing. You put something together and everybody. Well, they do send out occasionally, they do send out a story list and you get an email with story lists. I've never once gotten that email and been able to come up with a specific idea. Uh, for myself and my relationship to the show, it's usually more based on a sort of one-to-one -one uh, conversation with um, the folks that I know that I work with, you know, uh, that I'm friends with. The way they seem to work, because, you know, I'm only sort of freelance. I don't, I'm, I'm not a producer or anything. The way they seem to work is they'll come up with themes and I think the way they come up with themes is they'll have one really good story, one really good anchoring uh, cornerstone. And as things come in, they can somehow manipulate the story to sort of fit into an overall theme. And they're the ones who assemble it. But no, you, you never know who else is on the bill with you until you hear it when you tune in on the radio. So, which is nice. Um, and I guess as it should be. I think it would. Uh, I think it would Heisenberg us too much if we knew what the other stories were. Yeah, so it's, it's nice that way. Let's take one more question. Okay. Yes. For this, <laughs> that no one would come. <laughs> um, that I would uh, not manage to uh, elegantly move from podium to chair if I needed to. That I would actually <laughs> keel over. <laughs> um, luckily, neither turned out to be the case. <laughs> but I was stealing myself for both eventualities. Um, but yeah, that's you know that's the kind of stuff that runs through the mind. <laughs> it's, uh, but again, you can be perfectly happy that way. You just, it keeps you uh, thin. <laughs> um, I'm incredibly grateful to you for coming this evening. Thank you.